we are looking at the market and trying to spot opportunities starting from the less risky positions. And those include investment grade on the sovereign side. Those bonds and those spreads have widened a lot. We think that in many cases, way overestimate the probability of default. We think that a country like Indonesia, the probability of default of those bonds are overstated by at least a factor of 10. In the case of a country like Russia, it's probably a factor of 20 or more. And so to us, those are great opportunities. They are very safe assets to hold in hard currencies, in currencies that are or have been favored by investors and that offer a great compensation for risk of default. So hard currency sovereign investment grade bonds appear to be particularly attractive uh, for an investor that wants to start dipping their toes into the current environment. That was Ricardo Adroge, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode seven of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is particularly important right now because we are moving away from our every other week cadence, and instead we'll be publishing episodes as soon as they are ready. We know that markets are moving quickly right now, and we want to make sure we have our team's latest insights available to you as quickly as we can. So on today's show, I spoke with Ricardo Adroge, Global Head of Sovereign Debt and Currencies at Barings. In the conversation, we discussed how the moves in today's debt, currency, and rates markets compare with what we've seen historically, which countries, currencies, and industries are faring better or worse, what the team is watching to gauge the possible length and depth of this crisis, and finally, where the most compelling value opportunities are beginning to emerge. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Ricardo Adroga. All right, Ricardo Adroga, thank you so much for joining me from Boston this morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Ricardo, we've seen markets change really at breakneck speed just over the past few weeks, going from record highs in equity markets and record lows in some places uh, for credit spreads to a complete reversal with many markets now seeing prices and spreads move to levels that really we haven't seen in some cases since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. So you've got a very broad perspective on all of this as head of global sovereign debt and currencies here at Bearings, and also having spent a portion of your career with the IMF. So I'm hoping you can start maybe by putting some of the moves that we've seen in recent weeks into context. So I'm curious what you're seeing when it comes to things like credit spread levels in EM debt and how they compare to other periods of extreme volatility. So maybe start there and just put this in context for us, if you can. Sure. So when we look at the market, especially what it has happened in the past, actually two and a half weeks since the end of the first week of March, we have seen a big sell-off in markets, a big dislocation across markets, equities, fixed income. The only markets that have been relatively more stable have been U.S. treasury markets and some bond markets in developed markets. 
Uh, the rest of the markets, including investment grade, high yield, sovereign rates, currencies, especially those of emerging markets, have suffered greatly. When we put it in context, we can look at the spread of the index, for example, the MB Global Diversified Index, which is a broad index that looks at all emerging market sovereigns. And that index today is at the whites it has been since the 2008-2009 crisis. Hmm. Okay. And that is remarkable because it happened in the course of less than two weeks. During the great financial crisis in 2008-2009, it was a few months. It was by December 2008 that that happened. So that would suggest that potentially it could continue or this could be a great buying opportunity. Other markets, currencies have also sold off around 20%, but mostly concentrated on emerging market currencies. Um, in the past month, uh, currencies have depreciated between, let's say, 15% and 25% emerging market currencies. One of the worst performing currencies has been the Mexican peso. Developed market currencies on the other side have been a little bit more stable. So it has been a run not just to the dollar. It has been a need for liquidity. And so from that perspective, it seems that the actions of the ECB and the Fed may help cushion the effects of this crisis. So when you look across the kind of broad universe of emerging markets debt and you look at things like local currency-denominated debt, sovereign hard currency-denominated debt, and also EM corporate debt, which parts of that universe have been most effective? Has it been kind of a wholesale sell-off and credit spread widening across the board, or have some sectors or parts of that space been more impacted than others? Uh, it has been a full-sale sell-off. Now, much like in other sell-offs, the quality of the underlying instrument has played a little bit of a role. The correlation across the sell-off has been basically very close to one, so everything basically sold off. Uh, but a sell-off on an investment-grade name typically has been a little bit less than a sell-off in a high-yield name. In spread terms, for example, we have gone from spreads of less than 200 basis points in investment grade to about 500 basis points. And in high-yield, we have gone from spreads of about 500 to 1,200. On the local side, we have seen currencies sell off, as I said, around 20%, give or take. And then interest rates uh, in emerging markets, they have for the most part, gone up. Yield curves have moved up. And depending on the country, we have seen rates going up between 20 basis points and about 300 basis points. Uh, here, it's much more difficult to assess if it is a quality or if it is the positioning that drove these type of moves because it doesn't seem to be related necessarily to country's quality, but more to where the investors going into this crisis were the most exposed to and those are the countries that have suffered the most in terms of interest rates going higher. And, and one of the obviously big drivers here behind some of the weakness that we've seen has been the uh, sell-off in oil prices. That's, I think most have pointed back to the uh, price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia as being the, the major uh, culprit behind that. Um, you and your team just put out a paper in the last couple of days called Finding Fundamental Value Through the Storm. And in that piece, you've included a section on oil prices where you talk about why your analysis shows that Saudi Arabia actually may not be able to withstand current prices for a long period of time. So can you just maybe summarize that or tell me why you think that is the case? Yes, in a nutshell, uh, Saudi Arabia starts 
this current situation with uh, international reserves uh, slightly north of $450 billion. And it has engaged into uh, an oil price war or appears to be engaging in an oil price war, bringing oil prices down. It is certainly being helped by the global slowdown that is causing demand of oil to have gone down. But the announcement uh, of Saudi Arabia increasing production in the midst of a global recession uh, was what caused a big drop in oil prices from levels of close to 60 to all of a sudden around 35 and nowadays even lower than that. Now, one of our team members have done extensive work on this. And we come to the conclusion that those levels of reserves could evaporate from Saudi Arabia if the oil price were to stay at around 25 in about three years. So we estimate that by the end of 2022, if oil prices were to be kept at 25, Saudi Arabia could lose most of the reserves and run reserves below $100 billion, which would be really very, very low. That is predicated on the assumption that oil prices uh, staying at $25 a barrel will result in a, a drawdown of international reserves by Saudi Arabia to fund the fiscal deficit. Effectively, Saudi Arabia has a 10% of GDP fiscal deficit at the price of 25. We estimate they will go to 20% or more of a fiscal deficit because we assume that Saudi Arabia won't have much room to cut expenditures. In that environment, using the reserves to fund the fiscal deficit will result in reserves at the end of the day by the end of 2022 to be below $100 billion. And that's something that we don't think Saudi Arabia is prepared to do. Okay. So it sounds like there's potentially some reason to be optimistic that the current depressed oil prices may not be the norm, at least over the medium to long term. How about, you know, besides oil prices, as you think about this crisis overall, and you and, you and your team are are trying to wrap your heads around the impossible question of how long it could last and, and how deep it could be. What other indicators are you looking at? The way we perceive the current crisis is a policy-induced crisis. It is true that the virus is devastating from a human perspective, that the contagion of the virus is very high, the death ratio of the virus is significant, but what is causing the current economic recession is the government's decisions to put health over economic well-being and putting basically locking down all these economies around the world to stop the spread of the virus or to slow it down until either a cure is found or some way to deal with the number of infected people is found. And so for that reason, the it will be a policy response. We expect that emerging markets will have to return to some form of normality sooner than developed markets, mostly because a lot of people in emerging markets absolutely are making a choice between dying of hunger or dying from the virus. And governments in those countries will have to make that decision that they may need to reopen the economy sooner rather than later. In developed markets, because the countries have a little bit more more savings, and they have more ability to, to sustain the people that are out of their job for longer, they could extend the uh, period of quarantine. But at the same time, we think that those countries have better health systems. And therefore, at some point, they should be ready to cope with uh, the virus of an economy that is working back together. And so in both cases, we think that these events that we're currently living through 
will be a temporary phenomenon and policies will be instituted to reopen these economies. What about some of the data that you're seeing out of some of the countries that entered into this first? So if you look at how the virus um, has spread in China, or if you look at some of the other Asian markets like Korea, what are you seeing there that can give you some indication of how things may go in some of the Western markets? And also, I'm curious, you know, in some prior conversations that we've had, I got the sense that that you thought that some of the decision makers in financial markets based in the West, may not be operating uh, with the latest information, and that may be biasing the scenarios that people are pricing in to how long this may last. The coronavirus started in China, as it it is well known, in late 2019. And the policy actions taken in China um, and other parts of Asia gives us quite a bit of hope. As a matter of fact, China started locking the uh, region of Wuhan in January, around January 20th of this year, and that region has been locked down up until about a few weeks ago, about two months. China was the first country to face this virus. We saw the exponential growth of the contagion and the deaths caused by this virus. We saw the rapid and aggressive actions from the government and the authorities in China to contain the spread of the virus. And the virus appears, based on every indication that we're seeing in terms of number of people being affected, in terms of uh, resumption of economic activity, in terms of our own people that work at bearings that have been allowed to go back to their points of um, employment, in this case Shanghai from Wuhan, uh, suggests that the economy is going back to normal right at the time that the financial markets are basically facing the brunt of the current situation. It is remarkable that while the crisis started January 20th, at least became fully public in January 20th, it was only on March 3rd that markets really started to take really a dive. And that's effectively when this virus and the actions of governments were starting to be taken on the West, which is primarily where the bigger savings across the world get originated and get allocated. It appears that the financial markets are operating with a lag of about a month and a half. And so while we are already seeing some improvements in Asia, particularly in China, but I will talk briefly about Japan and Korea, we are only seeing the effect in the financial markets about a month and a half late. Mm. And that gives us quite a bit of hope. Because in the case of China, as I said, the virus appears to have been contained. The effect of the virus appears to be contained. And so is the case in Japan and Korea. And both countries operated under not as restrictive policies. Their economic systems did not shut down, much like in China. And we hope that developed markets in the West, particularly in Europe and the U.S., who had just locked up their economies about a week to two weeks ago, will learn from those experiences, particularly those of Japan and Korea, which appear to be almost as successful in containing the virus while minimizing the economic costs of doing so. So... Maybe in the West, we can learn something from what's been happening in the East. I think trying to predict these things with any degree of accuracy seems incredibly difficult right now. I think there's obviously still the potential that that you could see a resurgence in some of these Asian markets and others. But uh, I guess you know there is some reason for cautious optimism based on China and Korea and to some degree Japan's 
uh, ability to at least really slow the spread of, of the virus. So again, almost impossible to make predictions here, but that's interesting that, that that's what you and, and the team are, are keeping a close eye on. How about as you look you know, just more broadly across the EM landscape and you look at all the different sub-asset classes, and I may ask you to speak on behalf of some of your colleagues here as well, but as you look at sovereign debt, corporate debt, local debt, which includes rates and currencies, where are you starting to see some of the most compelling value emerge? So we are approaching from uh, trying to increase risk from a, a gradual perspective. And so from that angle, given that we really don't know how long this crisis will last, uh, we don't know how deep this crisis will be, and we may have our own views about the governments on the West learning from the lessons from the East, but we don't know if those will be implemented. As a matter of fact, President Trump uh, has said that he wants to open the economy as soon as possible, and it's getting a lot of backlash for having said such a thing. Uh, for that reason, then, we are looking at the market and trying to spot opportunities, starting from the less risky positions. And those include investment grade on the sovereign side. Those bonds and those spreads have widened a lot. We think that in many cases, way overestimate the probability of default. We think that a country like Indonesia, the probability of default of those bonds are overstated by at least a factor of 10. In the case of a country like Russia, it's probably a factor of 20 or more. And so to us, those are great opportunities. They are very safe assets to hold in hard currencies, in currencies that are or have been favored by investors and that offer a great compensation for risk of default. So hard currency sovereign investment-grade bonds appear to be particularly attractive uh, for an investor that wants to start dipping their toes into the current environment. The second one, close second, I would say, is interest rates in emerging markets, countries that are investment grade and have high domestic and strong domestic financial systems. Those interest rates in countries like Mexico or like Russia have seen big sell-offs. Uh, interest rates have moved up a lot in those countries, and we think those are great opportunities, the interest rate component. Thirdly, for those that are more prone to accepting risk, there's a lot of bonds that are in distress on the corporate space, especially on the high-yield side, uh, that for investors like us that uh, have the ability to do a very in-depth analysis on the underlying strength of those corporates, there's great opportunities there. And in distress, we're talking bonds in the 70s for a face value of 100. It is true that under certain scenarios, those could be complicated names, but under most scenarios that we can imagine, we think that uh, those are really very good opportunities for an investor that has a greater capacity to accept risk. Lastly, there are some currencies that uh, now appear to be overpricing most of these risks. However, it is very difficult to assess how long an outflow from emerging markets will go, and the outflows from emerging markets tend to be reflected in currency depreciations. So while some of those currencies may appear attractive, like an Indonesia or like a Polish Sloty, those are currencies that, based on fundamental trends, should not be trading where they are and they look attractive. But we are in a very difficult scenario where a lot of money has been getting out of emerging markets and basically the brunt of that is being taken by the currencies. 
Hmm. Okay, great. That's that's great context. I I don't think I had quite realized the extent to some of the discrepancies here that have opened up between fundamentals and where current prices are, especially as you mentioned on the hard currency sovereign side with Indonesia and I think some other names like Russia and Brazil um, with current prices implying levels probabilities of default, you know, 10, 20 times. Uh, more than than what we assess from a fundamental standpoint, that that's seems like a real, very material uh, dislocation that's happened. In addition to some of the other opportunities that you mentioned, so I guess it's from an investor standpoint, it kind of comes down to time horizon and ability to potentially capitalize on some of these things because these it seems like some of these values are you know, the types of things that come around not very often at all. So it's interesting to hear that that's what you and the team are starting to really turn your attention to. So I guess as as we finish up here, Ricardo, as you think about navigating the weeks, the months ahead, is there any guidance you would leave for our listeners here as they start to think about how they're going to navigate this this period, which is obviously so uncertain in terms of how long it will last. I'm curious, from your time managing portfolios through previous crises, from your time at the IMF, where you had a really interesting window into some of these factors, what would you leave people with here today? I guess a key lesson I, I would uh, like to leave investors with is that all of these crises have uh, ended at some point, sooner or later. I happen to be from a country that consistently have crises from Argentina. So on top of the world financial crisis that everyone is familiar with, I have my own set of crises from um, being from Argentina. And the truth is, ex post, we uh, investors and the general public sees these type of events as great opportunities that most times are missed. And the reason is that it's very difficult to call the bottom and everyone wants to call the bottom. We think that without knowing whether this today is the bottom in the market, we do realize that these are great times to actually put more money into the markets, into the emerging markets. As I said, the spreads are the, are the widest they have been since 2008. Uh, in some cases, they are wider than 2008 in the case of the high yield side, uh, and they go back to 2001, which was even wider than 2008. The index is clearly not the same, but there's a lot of great opportunities in the market. And the reason this is happening, in part, is because of panic. Investors that thought they had this money for the long run, all of a sudden have second thoughts and say, well, maybe they, we want to have some of that money back in cash. And the central banks of the world need to provide that cash because there's not enough cash when everybody wants cash. And so they're being providing that cash. And so to us, that's a great signal. Another great signal between the spreads that are at very at historical highs, basically, and the central banks basically providing the liquidity that the markets have been looking for and they delayed because they have uh, processes by which they have to provide it, this is a great time. I don't know if it is the bottom, but it's certainly a great time to consider allocating more to emerging markets. Yeah, that's that's great context and helps to give us the right perspective, I think, from a, from a historical standpoint of where we are today. It's I can imagine for investors trying to allocate money in a time like this, it can be very difficult to try to put new money to work uh, when you're facing down so many uncertainties and risks. But it's interesting 
to hear your perspective and to hear the the extent of the value that you're you're starting to see here today. So, Ricardo, I know it's a it's a busy time. I appreciate you stepping away from the markets for a few minutes to to speak with me. It's been really insightful. I hope to speak again soon, and I uh, hope you and your family stay safe throughout this uh, period. So, thanks again. Same to you and all our listeners. Thanks, Ricardo. Thanks for listening to episode seven of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.